0: You have your Bibles, please open to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This Easter Sunday, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Uh, my title this morning is Six Foundational Gospel Truths. As, be- as I begin, I want to begin with an illustration of the importance of a good foundation. So the famous Tower of Pisa in Pisa, Italy, also known as the Leaning Tower of Pisa, was built in three stages over a period of 199 years. It was the, the construction began on the foundation on August the 9th, 1173. After the construction was completed, the tower was approximately 185 feet tall and weighed an estimated 16,000 tons. Now, if you've been there, um, I have not been there, but um, they argue whether there's 296 or 298 steps to the top, depending on how you count, I guess. Um, I didn't know that was really a thing, but the tower began to sink after construction had prog- progressed on the second floor. So they had only got to the second floor when the tower began to shift to the side. This was due to the fact that they only laid a nine-and-a-half-foot foundation for a 185-foot tower. So the foundation is less than 10 feet deep, and it was set in a weak, unstable subsoil because Pisa actually means like a, like a marshland. So um, the, it was a design that was flawed from the beginning. Construction had to be halted for almost a century after it began due to war, which allowed time for the underlying soil to settle some. Otherwise, um, researchers say that the tower would have fallen almost immediately. Now, starting in 1993, um, the the, the, the people of Italy added 870 tons of lead plates on the back of the tower to stabilize it. It's a lot of lead plates, okay, 870 tons were added, which straightened the tower slightly and stabilized its moving. This tower is a reminder, in my opinion, of the importance of a solid foundation. If the foundation is weak, then the whole structure that it's built upon will also be weak. This truth goes back as far as mankind as long as we've been building things. Um, whether it's the great pyramids in Egypt or the Roman Colosseum a strong foundation is essential for the structure to withstand time now Paul knows this to be true when he writes to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 1 Paul had never visited this church he had never been there but he wanted to write to this church and encourage them to build their faith on, on certain firm foundational truths of the gospel and here's the point. If they faltered, if the church at Rome faltered in its foundation, then their faith would surely fail in the future. I want you to take that to mind in your own life, in your own heart, that if you falter at the foundation of the gospel, the foundational truths that the, that the Bible communicates, if you falter at those points, then your faith will surely fail in the future. So let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So I want to give you six foundational gospel truths this morning upon which we need to base our faith and our lives. I have to move quickly. Um, because because there's six of them. So here's the first one, if you're taking notes first. Notice that first, it is the gospel of God. When Paul writes, he is writing saying, this is the gospel of God. Look at verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. So, my main point here is that the origin the source of the gospel is God himself God himself is the source and the origin of the gospel this explains why Paul is a slave of Christ Jesus it also explains why he's been called to be an apostle neither of those things originated in Paul they didn't, Paul didn't come up with them they're not Paul's ideas because God is the author and the source of the gospel Paul can be made a servant of the gospel and be called to be an apostle of the gospel and be set apart for it. Now listen to how Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the most clear passages about the resurrection. Listen how Paul speaks about how the gospel came to him. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain he says for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James then to all the apostles last of all As one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul's point is that Jesus appeared to me and gave me the gospel. It's That God himself, Jesus himself, is the source by which I received it. Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, hear me this morning. The Christian good news is the gospel of God. The apostles did not invent it, it was revealed to them and entrusted to them by Christ Himself. So that means the gospel isn't my idea. The gospel isn't my idea. It's not anyone else's idea, it's God's idea. And I want to say, you can reject my ideas or the ideas of other thinkers, other theologians, other scientists, other philosophers, but when it comes to the gospel, Paul says that the foundational truth is that it is not man's idea. It is God's gospel. So first, it is the gospel of God. He is the author of it. He is the source of it and the foundation of it. Secondly, notice that it is the gospel of God about Christ. Now this sentence is going to keep getting longer. I'm going to give you a hint here. I'm just going to keep adding to the sentence, okay? So it is the gospel of God about Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4, what Paul says. He says, of which he promised beforehand through his, holy pro- through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord so what i want to say here is that jesus is the substance of the gospel jesus is the focus he is the centerpiece of all of god's promises of all of god's prophets, of all of god's word in verse three jesus in verse three paul states jesus's absolute claim to humanity and to the royal throne of king david he says who is descended from david according to the flesh so jesus is the son of david but verse 4 states jesus's absolute claim to deity it says there that he was declared to be the son of god in power by his resurrection from the dead Listen, just like the horizon, when you go outside and you look at the horizon, the horizon separates heaven and earth. The resurrection from the dead is what separates Jesus from all other people who have ever lived. But Paul says it wasn't just his resurrection that declared him to be the son of God. No, it was also, Paul says, that he was declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness. So the, perf- the perfectness, the perfection of Jesus' nature and character sets him apart and makes him unlike any other man that has ever lived. He was the spotless Lamb of God without blemish. No person, no Pharisee could prove that Jesus ever sinned, though they tried. God didn't give us, and I want to say here, this is the point. Some of us want an airtight argument about God's existence or about the truth claims of Christianity. We want an an airtight argument that will defeat all other arguments. And I want to say to you today that God did not give us that. You're putting your hope in the wrong thing. God did not give us an airtight argument. Instead, God gave us an airtight person. It's the person of Jesus Christ Christ. A person that was so unlike all others that it cannot be explained unless this be the Son of God in the flesh for us. No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever loved like this man. No one ever gave like this man. No one ever confronted abusive religious leaders like this man. Jesus alone. This is what this means. Um, The gospel is the good news promised in the scriptures that there is a resurrected human and divine messiah king who is the son of god and his name is jesus our lord and for the romans that was important that meant that caesar isn't lord jesus is lord jesus is the great king we've been waiting for so this also means for us that there is no gospel if we're talking about the foundational truths of the gospel that means there is no gospel there is no good news If you remove Jesus from the equation, if you remove Christ from it, if you remove Jesus from entering into human history, God dwelling among us, Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and is now risen, and is now ascended to the right hand of the Father where He's interceding on behalf of the saints, if you remove Jesus, you have none of those things. There is no good news. Christianity stakes its claim as truth on the historical objective truth that Christ lived and died and rose again in history as witnessed by the disciples and hundreds of others. There's all kinds of people in our world that would say Jesus is a good moral teacher. They would try to say Jesus is a good example. Jesus is someone we should look up to. But Jesus won't give us that option. As C.S. Lewis famously said, he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who claimed he was a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But the foundational truth is it is the gospel of God about Christ. Third, it is the gospel of God about Christ according to the scriptures. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Which he promised, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So here's my point. The scriptures attest. The Old and New Testament scriptures attest and verify Who Jesus is. That is the point. Follow Paul's argument here. He says that God spoke through his prophets. Notice what Paul says. He's making an argument. He says God spoke through his prophets. The prophets told us of a coming Christ. Now, if we take all of the Old Testament, all the Old Testament. Um, scriptures together we learn early in Genesis that there will be a serpent crusher who will be coming to deliver God's people and then we're told by Moses that there will be a great prophet coming after him in the law and then the Old Testament scriptures tell us of the great king who would come in Samuel they tell us of God's great deliverer in the book of Psalms they told us of the coming son of man in Daniel And they told us of the one who would come and usher in a new covenant that would be greater than the old covenant. He told us that in in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the Old Testament Scriptures told us of the Spirit-anointed suffering servant in Isaiah who was crushed for our iniquities. So here is the point. When God spoke, when God spoke, the prophets wrote down God's Word for us. They penned the promises of God to us. And what the prophets wrote down became the holy scriptures. And Paul is reminding the Romans that you can read these. That you have copies of God's Old Testament law. You can read these promises for yourselves. And so can we. And because God is the source of this revelation, we call the scriptures holy. They're holy because... God is the author and the source. They are absolutely unique and unlike any other book that has been written. According to 2 Timothy 3, 16, they are theonoustos. That's the Greek word meaning God, theos, noustos meaning breath. They are God breathed. God's very breath in His Word. So the Gospel comes to us as the great and sure fulfillment of God's Word. You have to build, we build our our faith on that foundational truth. It is the gospel of God concerning His Son, about Jesus, according to the Holy Scriptures. Fourth, for all the nations. It is the gospel of God about Christ, according to the Scriptures, for all nations. Do you see what it says there in verse 5? He says through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for for the sake of his name among all the nations. So the scope of the gospel, we've heard about the source of the gospel and the substance of the gospel being Jesus, but now we're given the scope of the gospel. The scope of the gospel is for all the nations. Hear me. There is no nation, no tribe, no language or people that is excluded from the Gospel's view. Jesus did not simply die for the people of Israel that were located in a certain geographical place in the Middle East or those scattered abroad among the cities of the ancient Near East. No, Jesus died, according to Paul, for the sake of all nations, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles. All are included in God's plan and invited to come to Jesus. Paul knew the Great Commission. He had been called for the sake of the Great Commission. Paul knew that Jesus did not simply die for one people, but for the entire world. And until Jesus comes, I want to remind you that this is still our mandate as God's people. We must take the gospel to all the nations, but it must begin first in each of our lives. It must come to our hearts and our homes first before it goes anywhere else. It begins in our lives, our churches, our community, our county, our state, and then to the ends of the earth. And listen, that means that all people are welcome and invited to come to Jesus regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their education, regardless of their upbringing, regardless of their cultural heritage, regardless of their skin color. Jesus died for all peoples everywhere. We have a gospel that is worthy to be proclaimed among all the nations because Jesus is worthy in every nation. Amen? It is Jesus who is worthy to be proclaimed. Not me, not us. It is our Savior. It is the gospel of God for all the nations. And then notice fifth, it is the gospel of God about Christ according to the Scriptures for all nations for the obedience of faith for the obedience of faith do you see what paul says there in verse five he says he says there that we've received grace and apostleship for a reason we received the grace of the gospel found in jesus and we received apostleship meaning we're called to christ's mission to bring about the obedience of faith now for those of us that grew up in very evangelical circles who absolutely celebrate the gospel of we are saved by the free grace of God, by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, not apart from works. We are saved by God's sheer grace apart from works. When we hear the obedience of faith, that sometimes makes us wince, doesn't it? We're like, Paul, what are you saying here? Are you saying we're saved by our obedience? I thought we were saved by grace. And I want to point this out, that, um, that that's not what Paul is saying. A phrase like that does make us flinch, but it shouldn't, because here's the point. We are saved by the sheer grace of God apart from the works of God. However, we believe that the grace of God that awakens faith in our dead hearts is a grace that transforms people into those who lovingly and willingly obey Jesus. That's what God's grace does. It transforms us from the inside out from being people who are obstinate in rebellion To being people who now willingly and joyfully and lovingly obey Jesus. Jesus said it this way. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. But the problem is we don't love God apart from Jesus. We are all in darkness. We are separated from God by our sin. The Bible says we love darkness and craved evil. But when Christ comes in, our hearts are transformed. And now we seek to obey him perfectly. No. None of us, we will still battle with sin until they lay us in the ground. We will battle with sin, but the desires of our heart are being transformed day by day so that we want and desire to follow Jesus. This is what Robert Mounts, the famous theologian, says. He says, "...the gospel is the good news for all who will respond in faith, but faith inevitably causes obedience." Faith is not intellectual assent to a series of propositions, but surrender to the one who asks us to trust him. So it's not about philosophical assent, it's about surrendering to Jesus. To surrender is to obey. Biblical faith is not some mild assent to a collection of ethical maxims, but an an active commitment of one's life. He says obedience is the true measure of a person's faith. And my point here is that Paul's desire was to take the gospel to the entire world to see the nations turn to God in a faith that changes them. That changes them. It's the gospel of God about Christ according to the scriptures for all nations for the obedience of faith. This is a faith that changes lives individually. And through changing individual lives, it changes families. And through changing families, it changes communities and through changing communities he changes entire cultures who once walked in darkness but now walk in love and light one with another but then finally i want you to notice that it is the gospel of god about christ according to the scriptures for all nations for the obedience of faith for the sake of jesus name this is the highest motive of everything we do in the church as believers look what paul says there at the, right there in verse, in verses five and following, he says, "We brought about grace. Sorry, um, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. It is for the sake of the name of Jesus. This is the motive behind taking the gospel to the nations. As John Piper rightly pointed out, missions exist because worship doesn't." The reason missions exist is because there are people who do who have never heard the name of Jesus, who cannot lovingly walk with Him in a relationship knowing that they've received forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus' name is so exceedingly worthy and so glorious that He is deserving of the worship of every single person on this planet. Here's the point. We go because our King is worthy. We don't have this attitude that, oh, poor God needs our help again. Gracious, no. God needs nothing. Worship isn't about elevating God's glory as though we're adding to his worth. No, it's about seeing him for who he rightly is and saying, you are worthy of worship. And when God invites us into worship, he is inviting us into eternal joy we were created to be in relationship with him forever experiencing his goodness and his glory forever in a personal intimate way having all of our highest desires fulfilled in who he is that's what it's that's what it's really about that we would taste and see that the lord is good that we would long for him notice all the emotive words that god uses that we would hunger for him we thirst for Him, we would long for Him, and all those desires find their end, find their fulfillment, not in things of this world, not in the material things this world offers, but in the God for whom we were created, created for Him. Listen, we don't feel sorry for Christ. We don't go because we also we don't we don't also go because we feel sorry for other people because they are poor or malnourished as horrible as that is. We don't go because they will die and go to hell separated from God as true as that might be. Our motive is the praise, honor and glory of Jesus. Your passion for Christ's mission is directly tied to your view of Christ's majesty and honor. If Jesus is little and puny, he's not worthy of worship, and he's not worthy talking about. But if he is the chief end for which all things were created, and he is the highest good, the highest glory, then he is worthy of being proclaimed. John Stott said, the highest of the missionary motive is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Only one imperialism is Christian, and that is concern for His imperial majesty, Jesus Christ, and for the glory of His empire. Now, as I conclude, I want to point you again to verse 6 as I wrap this up. Look at verse 6. It says, Paul writes all of those foundational truths, and then he says, including you. Including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. The call of the Gospel is not only a call to carry out Christ's mission, it's ultimately a call to belong to Jesus above all else. So my question is to you, do you belong to Jesus above all else? Have you been called to belong to Jesus? And listen, those who belong to Jesus and call Him Lord do not get to dispute our Master's business or mission. No one gets Jesus and gets to skip out on his purposes. As Spurgeon rightly said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. So here's my question to you this morning. If you're not a Christian, if you are not a believer, then I have to ask you, what foundation are you building your life on? What foundation are you building your life on? And is that foundation going to last? Not only through this life, but through eternity. If Jesus is not your Lord, then I ask you to come and belong to him. Do you hear him calling? You, the Romans were called to belong to Jesus. We have been called to belong to Jesus. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So my question is, do you know Jesus? If you are a Christian, then I ask you, are, have you joined Jesus on his mission? Just like Paul says in verse 5, Jesus will give you grace and apostleship to join him on his mission. So our choice this morning is to come to Jesus and follow Him. Basing our lives on the truth that He came for us, died for us. He lived for us, died for us. Rose again for us to give us hope and eternal life. And right now, He is still calling us to belong to Him. I want to pray for us this morning. And after I close, if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come and speak to me. Or speak to Pastor Henry or Pastor Nick here. And tell us that I don't know Jesus. We would love to show you how you can have the same hope that those in Rome had because they had heard the gospel concerning Jesus. And if you know Jesus, then I ask you to walk with him this Easter. Live in the light of the resurrection and build your life on these firm foundational truths so that in the future your faith will not falter. Let us pray. Father, bless your word now. Father, may we build our lives upon Jesus and upon the truth of your word and father i pray that you would change us and transform us into his image that we would lay down selfishness and rebellion and arrogance and pride we would lay down our innate sinful self-righteousness and father we would walk in humility and faith before you loving and serving out of out of reverence for christ and walking after him as our example who washed the feet of the of his disciples who laid down his life for the poor and the downtrodden who fed the poor, and healed the sick, Father, who walked in every way in obedience with you, not taking everything unto himself, but giving of himself for the good of others. Father, we ask this in Christ's name, amen. May God bless you as you go, may you have a wonderful resurrection Sunday.